Words are how we communicate. Their power is undeniable. In this episode, award-winning author of many books on language and faith, Marilyn McIntyre, helps us understand the responsibilities we carry when speaking and the joy that comes from crafting words wisely. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome back to Upwards. I'm Dan and I'm grateful for a chance to share with you a recording of one of my favorite past Upper House events from the last few years. In 2020, when we were still looking for ways to engage our community from a distance, we turned to Zoom events like so many others. One of our early events from that time was an interview by our director of programming, Melissa Shackelford. Melissa talked with author Marilyn McIntyre, who many of you may recognize. They discuss the immense power of words, the ways in which they are used to high effect, but also often abused. They explored the effects of illusion, metaphor, euphemizing, and the ways that we muddle distinct language from different contexts into one. As a lover of words, I've really appreciated reflecting on this conversation and Marilyn's wisdom since she shared her thoughts. We need her insights as much now as we did in 2020. Marilyn McIntyre is an author and teacher who's taught for decades on a variety of topics related to writing, language, and the humanities. She's written many books covering a wide range of topics, including her book, Speaking Peace in a Time of Conflict, which is covered in part in this episode. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation from the vault with Melissa Shackelford and Marilyn McIntyre. Marilyn, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And did you just get me? Yes, we are all set. Fabulous. So excited for tonight's conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. And in your introduction, you set it up so well where you set the stage um, really where we're at in our culture by saying speaking is not a politically or theologically neutral act anymore. Sorry, speaking is not a politically or theologically neutral act any more than voting or buying. What do you mean by that? What is at stake with our words? Well, words take us into pretty deep places. The words that we choose always have uh, resonance around them. And every word has a history. Every word has associations. And as we've witnessed in current public discourse, so many words now have been embedded in slogans and in um, particular kinds of propaganda or particular kinds of um, denominational orientation. There are lots of ways in which words acquire color. And so choosing them means that you are awakening those associations. You're inviting them. You might be challenging them. But unless we talk about the words themselves, a lot is communicated just under the surface of the words. So I think being mm-hmm. conscious about those word choices is part of our stewardship. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes is a call to action that you make where you say, 
we need to hold one another accountable for the meanings that we make. What do you mean by that belongs somewhere in every conversation. And a few sentences later, you venture to call this practice a spiritual discipline. Can you reflect on the spiritual nature that you're describing here? Yeah, I think there are two questions. What do you mean by that? And what do I mean by that? And I think both of them are spiritual practices. What do you mean by that? Ought to be a question that comes up frequently in conversations within faith communities. Certainly starting with, what do you mean by Christian? Could we just talk about that? Because right now that word covers a pretty wide spectrum in this country. So inviting one another to tease out the more specific understanding of those or words that we use, or to just ask, you know, is there, how do you think about how you name the persons of the Trinity? How do you think about the God language that we use together? Um, where are your preferences there? And what are some of your associations? That's a lively conversation. And it has a lot to do with the moment we are inhabiting in the life of the church. And then I think, what do I mean by that? is a way of just stopping and checking in with ourselves so that we don't use words any more carelessly than we use other resources. In the, the book, my book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, which preceded this one, um, I used the analogy all the way through of caring for words and caring for the soil and the crops and the ecosystems, because I do believe that words are little packets of energy and we exchange them and as we exchange them, we're really imparting life, liveliness, um, energy to each other. Mm. That's really great. I love that just even as a personal reflection or journaling exercise to ask ourselves what we mean and to pursue defining those personal terms. Um, mm. We might not have gone as, as deep, um, but we're still using those words. It seems as though the idea of speaking peace um, sometimes requires us to actually disrupt the norm. How do we reconcile being people of peace, but also being willing to speak up? Can you unpack that tension for us? Yeah, I think that, that the difference is between um, doing something nice and doing something good. I, I think that being willing to disrupt what's happening is, I think you have brought this up before and you might bring it up again, but the, it's a kind of prophetic moment to say, wait a minute, could we just clarify here? Because I don't want our understanding of each other to be superficial. I don't want us to be hiding things that need to be said. If we're going to seek true peace, then Jesus is the model. You know, he wasn't nice all the time and he really confronted people. And not only Jesus, but I've referred people before to Jane Austen. You know, I think of the, the world that she describes in those novels that from the outside looks very polite and courteous. But because everybody understands the foundational importance of kindness and courtesy and what people owe each other, and the social contract is more or less intact in the world that she creates, people can afford to confront each other and hold one another to account for the sake of having a functional community. Mm. The New Testament's the better example, but I do think that there's lots of confrontation in the New Testament in the service of peace. So we don't have to go very far to find models for this. 
That's great. That's really good. Well, I want us to dive into maybe what some people might feel like is the English class portion of this conversation, talking a little bit about euphemisms and illusions and metaphors. Um, but I promise it won't be intimidating and Marilyn's going to bring us to a place of clarity. So for all of us uh, to refresh our memories, the definition of euphemism, according to Merriam-Webster, is the substitution of an agreeable or inoffensive expression for one that may offend or suggest something unpleasant. Marilyn, you encourage us to unmask euphemisms. Why is this necessary? What is happening when we do this? And can you give us an example? Sure. I Obviously, there are some euphemisms that are important efforts to be kind, to be gentle, and so on. You know, the, the ways that we name people's personal difficulties, the ways we talk about people across social boundaries, all of that. So let's just say that there are euphemisms that are acts of kindness. But I think one of the, if anybody out there remembers 1984, one of the things they talk about is the all the euphemisms that are generated by the Ministry of Propaganda. And it seems to me that euphemisms are often used for social or political control to make sure that you can deliver information without awakening critical questions or associations that might um, challenge what you want to act upon. Mm. And so I think that um, when we think about gentling words like detention center instead of prison, that's one example. Detention center isn't a very offensive term. What goes on in detention centers not to mention prison, is something we really need to look at. Mm. And when I think about all of the euphemisms we employ in war and warfare, and apart from the matter of whether, you know, where you are on the pacifist to uh, just war to warmongering spectrum, it seems to me that if we're going to conduct warfare, then we deserve to and we need to know what exactly we're engaging in. So, for instance, if you talk about an intervention or a liberation of people that involves dropping bombs on them, then maybe we need to talk about the bomb. And maybe we need to talk about the specific kinds of weaponry that we employ, that this country employs and other countries when they're making war and what it does not only to children and civilians as well as soldiers, but also to the ecosystems and the schools and the infrastructure. Or I think about um, <laughs> the, the difference with that George Lakoff, the linguist, pointed out between one party calling the same tax burden and another call, party saying tax relief. I mean, uh, yeah, takes, uh, one party, the ways in which we talk about taxes mm -hmm. One way can suggest that we shouldn't have to pay them. Another way can suggest that, of course, we pay them because that's how we pay for things. So being as explicit as possible is coming back to that New Testament, to Jesus' advice to let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I don't think that doesn't mean means don't use figurative language, mm -hmm. but I think it means be transparent, be clear. I love Adrian Rich's phrase that she wanted to be a woman sworn to lucidity. And the root word of lucidity is light. And I believe that faith, people of faith are light bearers. So 
the lucidity that says, I really want you to understand what we're talking about here as part of our ministry. Good. And it ties back to that question of what do I mean by that? What do you mean by that? And employing that simple question in conversation. Um, it also reminds me of our conversation this afternoon where we were talking about this moment of living through this pandemic and um, your work teaching and researching the literature of plagues and epidemics. And we, we talked about the phenomenon of what are we willing to know? Um, so it's that euphemism, the use of a euphemism can distance us and create kind of a pocket of, of comfort um, with something that's more vague or, or masking, but it doesn't allow us to get proximate with the idea or what's actually happening. Yeah. You, I love this phrase that you use when you, you talk about this task of unmasking euphemisms, you call it the work of ordinary prophets. What do you mean by that? If I can ask you that question and in what ways is this act ordinary and in what ways is it prophetic? The act of unmasking euphemisms, you mean? Yeah. just the and the, the idea of, um, I just love the phrase ordinary prophet and, and kind of what are you, what are you envisioning? What are you imagining when you, um, when you think about that role, when you use that phrase Yeah, and it was used in, in the context of unmasking euphemisms? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think of prophets with a capital P as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, mm-hmm. but I think of prophets or the prophetic moment maybe not claiming the term prophet as a label for oneself, but to say all of us at different moments in our journeys of faith are called to be the guy to stand up and say, wait a minute, do you see what's happening? Mm. And so I think one good model of this is Quakers. I spent several years at one point attending Quaker meetings, and I have a lot of respect for what that particular group has sustained in their practice of allowing everyone in a great silence in worship to rise and speak if they feel the spirit is moving them. But you are conditioned as a Quaker to listen for the call or the nudge of the spirit. And you only speak if you think it's something for the good of the community. And you speak briefly and then you sit down. And I feel as though once in a while, any of us might be given a dream or might be put in that that needs to be shared or might be put in a situation where we're the only person who is likely to be willing to say, I'm sorry, there's a certain kind of deception happening here. And I really think we need to name it. Mm. So that's what I think of as the prophetic moment. And I think of the essential task of prophets, not so much as foretelling, but really pointing out the implications of what's right in front of us. So I think also that the task of prophecy is to dive under the surface and say, wait, what? (laughs) Could we talk about this before we go on and go in before we go on? So it's that kind of leadership doesn't have to be a role or a title. It could just be the call of the moment. Absolutely. Well, I want to move from euphemisms to illusions. I laughed out loud when you acknowledged that illusions can be, quote, annoying gestures of (laughs) one-upmanship. I love that phrase. And that uh, it takes grace and generosity to use illusions well. How can we be graceful and generous in our use of illusions? 
Well, I had a friend, an older friend who modeled this for me so beautifully. She knew reams of poetry. She was, she was deeply, richly educated. And in conversation, she would freely allude to some of the things that she had read that many of the other people in the room might not have. She would just do it in a way that was offering a little gift to people. Like, do you remember the line from Robert Frost? I love this line. And then she would say it. And the do you remember suggested that maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't, but let's, let's enjoy it together. Yeah. And so that way of being invitational about alluding to something Martin Luther King said or something Gandhi said or something Washington said or um, something Jesus said, you know, or do you remember the passage in Ezekiel? And I'm thinking, no, because I spent a lot more time in the New Testament. Could you refer? <laughs> but the do you remember or, or um, just in passing, as I recall, Isaiah has a passage about this. Or as I recall, there's a, you know, in the Magna Carta already, we see some of the things that show up in the Constitution. Remember in school when they tell you about the Magna Carta? And so making a little thread of connection to some experience the other person may have had as you introduce mm -hmm. an allusion to something they may not have read, it's just part of the kindly work of conversation as walking together and drawing people into a common system of reference. Mm -hmm. some, but we have to be willing to provide those things. And I think that too many people are so worried about being elitists, especially in a university community of the sort that you inhabit, and I do, that I think we often mistake um, simple, dumbing down for or the kind of simplification that is inviting, but not uh, trivializing. So it's a matter of discernment. But I think it's important to recall for one another what riches we have to draw on in the history that um, is still our common legacy. That's beautiful. And the ways you're talking about extend such grace um, yeah, but just the manner of speech and requires such humility. Um, before I read your book, I most often thought of metaphors um, used in a positive sense uh, as a way to add nuance or complexity to an idea uh, by means of comparison. But you introduce potential dangers with metaphor use, especially when they affect entire systems of thought in our culture. How is this possible? What are a few of those examples? Can you share with us? Yeah, this is a huge topic in itself. You know, whole books have been written about metaphor and I read metaphor is inevitable. We use it without even thinking about it. It's embedded in many of our verbs. Um, but for instance, I think one of the things that I have talked with medical people a lot about in these last years of teaching medical humanities is the ways in which military metaphors have assumed a kind of dominance in American medicine. The war on cancer, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, or we're fighting on two fronts here in this school district, or we're going to attack this disease. We're going to, you know, and even onward Christian soldiers. I mean, I just think that we need to look at the ways in which we hmm. appropriate the language of warfare for benevolent and sometimes healing work. 
or there are metaphors from the marketplace that bother me. I think that I remember telling a group at one point, well, of course, evangelism isn't the same as marketing. And somebody said, it isn't. <laughs> I, you know, I do think that there's this creeping invasion of um, the language of the marketplace into both the academy and the church that we need to be aware of, because there are some things that are way too precious to commodify. And I have actually heard education described as product delivery, which just makes me cringe. Um, but I think of just ordinary expressions, like I'm not buying it, or first I have to sell her on the idea, or yeah, that's money in the bank. All of those that kind of make money the standard of understanding and then I think about these two very consequential body metaphors, the body of Christ, which I believe is almost more than a metaphor. You know, it's not, not just a way of understanding that we are all connected. It's a way of understanding how we are all connected. And if you really push that metaphor, it's like we're all cells in the same body. We share the same energy field. There's something really mystical about that, that understanding of who we are as people of faith. But then I think about the body politic. And that's a dangerous metaphor, the notion that a state is an organism. And even some of the language of the founding fathers or um, four score and seven years ago, this, this continent, this um, nation was conceived in liberty. You know, four score and yet seven years ago is 87 years ago, a bunch of sweaty men in Philadelphia hammered out a constitution and they fought about it. And if we cover that over with the language of a body coming forth, the birth of a nation, we really obscure a lot of the process that we need to understand as citizens in a constitutional democracy. And just another example, I think about um, metaphors from the natural world, uh, how we, there was, there's this lovely line in a poem by Jean Jansen um, she speaks about hope as shoots everywhere, breaking through the crust of ash. And I have to say, I'm sitting here in California where all these fires have been happening. There's a crust of ash over a lot of this state. And that image of shoots, of shoots breaking through the crust of ash almost makes me weep. It's such a powerful metaphor for what we, what we hope hope can be. So, I'll stop there, but the, you know, there are mechanistic metaphors. We borrowed a lot of language from, uh, from computers and speak of one another in mechanistic terms. And I think that's eventually erosive. A long enough answer. I love talking about metaphors. So stop. <laughs> that's great. I just admire uh, your perpetual curiosity. I think that's something I hope people glean from tonight is how many layers there are. And, you know, even if we, when we use a metaphor, asking ourselves where that came from, why did we learn that? Perhaps uh, we grew up in a family where that a particular profession was modeled and we, that language was in our home and, and we, you know, it's subconscious. Um, but then, you know, maybe, maybe it's not all dangerous. Maybe there are positive elements that were, you know, we really do mean to bestow. Um, through the use of a metaphor, and it adds value. And so there's lots to tease out there. And just to say one more thing about the relationship of metaphor to faith, it was really startling for me when someone first pointed out 
how many economic metaphors there are in scripture. The whole idea of redemption is an economic metaphor. And I grew up singing this hymn in an evangelical church that my parents were in. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Well, sort of payment, the word payment and the idea of payment is, there's a whole theology behind that. So that's something to pay attention to. Metaphors are sort of tip yeah. of the iceberg. Interesting. That's very fascinating. So there's a certain messiness to pursuing truth in our language um, and the words that we use, especially when we get passionate about uh, our beliefs, the things we care about. You have a chapter titled Tell It Slant that alludes to an Emily Dickinson poem that reads, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Can you explain the difference between slant and bias? And at what point uh, is slant possibly on the verge of not being truth? Oh, yes. I'm happy to do that. Because I think there's a huge difference between slant and bias. Slant has to do with strategy. Bias has to do with an agenda, whatever your agenda mm. is. But, but slant, of course, she's talking about poetry and the way poetry, poetic discourse, surprises you into epiphany. It really appeals to a different language function in the brain. And one of the reasons to study poetry is to learn a different use of thought or a different way of thinking. It's not just to appreciate loveliness, but actually to learn a different mental discipline. And so slant means that you come in the back door. You surprise people with an image or a metaphor that makes them think twice about something they thought they knew. Or you surprise people with a line break that gives them a double take. So the idea of slant also can help people, can invite people to think about things they might be avoiding with all their euphemisms. For instance, I think about the way fiction tells its slant. Toni Morrison will get us to think about slavery in ways that we never did if, she, if we read Beloved or if we read her wonderful novel, Mercy. Or Steinbeck can help us think about the plight of poor farmers in the grapes of wrath by telling us the story of this one person. So you get the big picture by getting the little picture. But all of those literary strategies that say, come with you and with me, I'm going to tell you a story. And then by the, by the end of the story, people have arrived in a place that might be uncomfortable, but they will have gone on a journey of understanding that won't be the same if you just deliver the information. So slant has to do with craftiness and wit and um, the kinds of strategies we use to engage each other in conversation and surprise each other. Mm -hmm. And actually, I do tell students in writing classes, if you're not surprising yourself somewhere in your writing process, then it's probably not a very good paper. So be playful, you know, open up. If, if you have an impulse to digress a little bit, go there. And you might find yourself coming back in a different angle, and that angle is the slant you want. Interesting. So is there a point where slant can go too far? Is there an overemphasis on strategy that becomes bias or, or becomes too distant, maybe, from its original intent? 
Yeah, I don't know if it becomes biased, but I think we've all heard, you know, poetry that's so oblique that you just kind of roll your eyes and think, can I go home now? <laughs> because it's so, you know, there's so much sort of private illusion or I'm cleverer than thou. Of course, there there can be so much slant that you're not really communicating. So I think like so many other social disciplines and I think spiritual disciplines, we want to maintain a balance between invitation and challenge and between surprise and forthrightness and between graciousness and um, that holding each other accountable. So we live in that field, that field of creative tension where paradox is, and Jesus loved paradox, and we should too. <laughs> That's great. Um, you mentioned poetry a couple times, and you actually include a chapter on poetry, and that I think just exudes your love for poetry and, and the way that you champion it and its role. Um, so what does poetry play, uh, or what role does poetry play for us uh, in navigating a, a climate of conflict? Well, I think poetry provides a way around the, just the confrontation. You know, imagine if somebody had walked into, say, an interlude in the presidential so-called debate with a poem. <laughs> it changed everything. Now, I think poetry says there's another way to approach this. And poetry invites us to be playful, even serious poetry, even the poetry of lament involves wordplay because that's what poetry is. And I really believe that one of the fruits of the spirit is playfulness in its deepest, best sense. Not playfulness as in horsing around, but playfulness as in anything can happen. The kind of childlikeness that says, we're all in this together let's see what happens. Let's try stuff. You know, so that, I think poetry is that kind of invitation. It's just play with words. They do things to each other. Watch. There's something uh, performative about poetic discourse that says, watch what we can do and watch the words dance and watch the words do surprising things that they don't do in prose. So I think it's indispensable. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that in many countries in the world, poets are considered politically dangerous because they gather people in groups and public places and help them to think twice about what we're all involved in. So in that sense, I think that poetry can be a way around the propaganda machine. And in almost every oppressive regime, people are stuck inside a language machine that the state has created or that corporations have created. And the poets are the people who can slip in under the wire and do something that the state doesn't immediately recognize and therefore doesn't control in the same way. It's inherently subversive no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And the church needs that too. I also love thinking of poetry just as personal reflection exercise. I think um, it was in a previous conversation we had where sometimes the idea might not be meant for prose. It might be meant for a poem and that it actually finds its, its greatest life in that form. And I wonder if, um, you know, how many of us are undiscovered, just 
poets in a, in a personal reflection sense, um, just because perhaps the form sounds intimidating, um, but we might be able to unlock something uh, pursuing that just in our own, finding our own personal voice, um, perhaps in what we mean by things in pursuing poetry versus writing an essay, let's say. Yeah, and one thing I would add to that is that one exercise that's interesting to try is just write three sentences. It's cold outside. The season is turning. I wonder if I should get the winter clothes out. And then you start messing with your three sentences and break them up and make little line breaks and stanza breaks and see what the words do to each other. And all of a sudden, when you do that, something happens to the words. It doesn't automatically become a lovely poem. But sometimes it does because you start to hear phrases and you know, the practice of Lectio Divina that says, listen for the word or phrase that addresses you. That's a way of bypassing the claim or the idea or the proposition and saying, just let the words register. It's like noticing the color on a painting before you say, oh, it's a picture of a woman. You might say, look at those blues and the way they blend into the green." And all of a sudden, your whole noticing apparatus has changed. Yeah. That's great. So just like we can decide, you know, whether our, our thought takes form in prose or it takes form in poetry, um, it's, it's hard to discern when and how we express outrage and where that might have a place um, as we are trying to be people of peace and want to bring peace or make peace in conversations, um, you address this and, and really call us to articulate our outrage. And so I wonder if you could speak to how we determine when outrage might be appropriate and in what ways that might be well expressed. Well, it seems to me that the test, the litmus test for righteous anger as opposed to uncontrolled and inappropriate anger is the on behalf of. I, th I like remembering and reminding people that protest means to speak for, it doesn't mean to speak against. And so people who engage in vigorous protest are speaking for something. If you're protesting injustice, you are speaking on behalf of people who have suffered injustice. You're speaking for just practices. And it seems to me that outrage needs to be exercised in, in ways that are community-oriented, that summon people to action on behalf of the vulnerable, um, or that just say, this is not fair, this is not acceptable. Or, as a friend of mine, an older friend of mine years ago, rose up in a city council meeting where she thought people were just, you know, throwing around euphemisms and wasting their time and hiding what really needed to be said. And after a lengthy conversation she thought was pretty pointless, she stood up and said, gentlemen, this is hogwash. <laughs> you know, I think just she said it calmly and she said it to say, I'm not, you know, to go back to the euphemism, I'm not buying this. You need to be more responsible to the public. So that kind of confrontation maybe that doesn't reach the level of a word like outrage. We should be outraged about what's happening to children in cages. 
we should be outraged about what's happening to um, children in Yemen who are dying of, of preventable diseases or people whose homes are being destroyed in the midst of a political crossfire. You know, there are things worth being outraged about because that energizes us individually and as communities to act. And I think it actually activates courage sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So facts also play a role in um, our public discourse. Um, and fact-checking, it's likely uh, safe to say that we all know the intellectual value of fact-checking. Um, but you offer a very layered and very nuanced approach, drawing in the value of personal story as it relates to facts. You write, there's never just one story to tell, there are many. Can you tell us more about what our responsibility is to the facts that we find, um, how that relates to that specificity of, of personal story as well? Hmm. Well, I think that it's harder to find reliable facts than it used to be because of the nature of the media in this country and the way in which media ownership confuses the kind of hidden agendas or maybe proliferates hidden agendas or you have to test one media source against another. That's one thing. So I think one of our responsibilities is once we find a reliable fact to, sh to share it and to give the evidence and to say, this is how I came to the point of believing that this is true and you can check it for yourself. So holding ourselves to a particular standard of evidence. I also think it's important to build circles of trust in which we cross check each other. We have, a, we have several friends who do much deeper homework than we are able to do in very particular issues. Mm. And they, they have access to a deeper well of facts because they've really spent time sifting through all the sources. And so we rely on them for certain, one of them has read more about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict than anybody else I know. And so if I want some understanding about that, I go to him. Another of our friends has done a deep dive into an understanding of how the party machinery works in the political process. And he can help me understand that. So I, and be, I trust these people, but I think finding facts has become really relational. It's something we need to do with each other. Otherwise we get stuck in our bias. And then once we have them, we need to be willing to know them. We be, need to be willing to seek them in the first place. Uh, earlier today, I used the example of a friend who didn't want to know what goes on in factory farms. There are a lot of things it's easier to not know. But once we're willing to find them and do find them, then we need to be willing to act on them and um, willing to share them with people. Facts give us responsibility. But there's so many abstractions being moved around as the currency of public discourse. I think to bring a fact, a statistic, a story, an example into the conversation is a, a way of anchoring it in truth and taking responsibility for what we think we know. Um, Marilyn, when it comes to matters of public urgency, you wonder, and this is a quote, if there aren't times to re-examine and perhaps redefine civility. 
Likewise, you encourage that we also, quote, need to be sure we don't mistake timidity for civility. How and where do we tend to mistake these two? Well, I had a very rich conversation just a few days ago with some women who are all um, all Christians, all belong to churches. They're all active participants in their churches. And we talked some about this because there is a certain timidity these days about, quote, politics in the pulpit or talking politics at church. And I think when I think of what is political, I think of it very broadly as politics has to do with how we devise a social contract that keeps us from killing each other. How do we care for the vulnerable? How do we protect what needs protecting? How do we make sure that what is exchanged is exchanged fairly? All of that. So that's pretty much everything we do. And I don't think that separating our, our life of faith from our, quote, political life is healthy. Um, that's one thing. So I think not being timid about that is to say, no, the church is the place to talk about the issues, not to urge people to vote for a particular candidate, but to talk about healthcare, or about how we are hospitable to the stranger, what we do about immigration, what is the just and fair policy. Policy speak doesn't belong only in the public square. It's absolutely theologically relevant. And it does come back to loving God and our neighbor. And so I think that it's really important right now that people of faith not be timid about um, speaking for what, how their the political issues connect to their deepest moral commitment. And I also think that the fear of offending people just in social conversation goes a little too far. People can be so darn nice that you, nothing really significant gets said. So I think raising our threshold of tolerance for, for vigorous exchange, if not argument, but wait a minute, Clarify that for me. You know, that kind of, wait a minute, let's go a little further with this. That sort of invigorating conversation can be so life-giving within a family or community. And we need to be willing to create more of it instead of so much niceness. Hmm. I think niceness is a danger. <laughs> yeah, especially when we hold back truth and, and our own wrestling um, to find our faith. Uh, in these complex issues and give it voice. Um, you know, it reminds me of, um, you have a chapter on remembering and, and reminding other people, um, reminding ourselves what we, what we already know. And I was struck by your emphasis um, that perhaps could be overlooked in a number of impressive chapters in your book, but the emphasis is identity and um, really our identity in Christ. And that and remembering that. And um, I don't know, I remember, I just want, I think that having that as a chapter kind of is one thing we're holding in our hand, the remembering who we are and who we were created by, as well as um, our call to speak and to have those things be connected and not, not divorce them um, is part of what makes that civility more generous um, and maybe not timid. Right. If we know who we are, if we really internalize the identity that we are children of God, 
that we are pilgrims on a journey, that we are here on a mission, which is learning about love and you know, learning to live in love with others, learning to care for each other and the planet and so on. If we remember those deepest things, then it seems to me we can navigate the surface turbulence much more uh, responsibly. And I remember years ago when I was teaching at Mills College, which is the women's college in Oakland, one of the presidents was famous for saying, young women, remember who you are and what you represent. <laughs> and in that case, it was an institution, but it's a good line. Remember who you are and what you represent. You know, giving your, assuming a label from either the church or the state is to say, I really am willing to stand in public wearing this mantle and trying to carry responsibly all of the, the mission that it represents. So we need to remind each other of that. And we can get so caught in all the surface turbulence and to say, you know, below the party labels and even below our Americanness, we are earthlings. I really like that these days. That we are people who've been put on this planet for a purpose. It's a divine purpose. And I, I, for me, it comes back to in life and death, we are the Lord. We're being held and we're being loved. And that love is really at the center of who we are. Beautiful. So one more question for me. Um, as a culture, I think we can be a little obsessed with simplicity whether that's in the brevity of our words or simplifying our lives or decluttering our homes, um, you advocate for complexity within language. And you write that complexity is not the opposite of clarity. Oversimplification is a dangerous tool. Why should we be cautious when it comes to simplicity? Because oversimplification really is dangerous. It's what leads to bigotry. It's what leads people to a point of saying, well, I can sum it all up in a sentence. This is what I think that's, you know, I'm done. But I remember years ago when Ellen Goodman, who was the columnist for the Boston Globe, came to speak at Mills where I was teaching. At the end of her talk, she leaned over the podium and she said, the bottom line is always it's not that simple and so it seems to me to be willing to ask the next question that says wait how can these things be could you articulate this a little more clearly for me what is the process i think oversimplification tends to elide our understanding of process mm. so it's just a product you buy it says nothing about all of the complicated processes and um labor policies and ecological protections and everything that lie behind the thing you pick up in the grocery store. So there's a huge difference between being simple and being simplistic. I think true simplicity is a virtue, which says, uh, go for clarity, say what you mean, be lucid. I think lucidity really is a way of talking about real simplicity transparency, but not um, avoiding the complicating factors. Uh, I think false simplicity, we end up with slogans and they turn into weapons. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to turn to a few questions uh, that have been submitted from our audience. Um, one person is asking, how do we discern if something is propaganda? Um, that's a good question. I think that one of the one of the questions to raise about it is, what is it asking of you? If the does it ask you to go check for yourself? Is the statement simply a kind of open a, a closed claim? And certainly, is it a simplistic attack, an ad hominem attack on a person? Or does it reduce complicated policies or complicated international situations or um, economic arrangements to, well, we're just going to give the poor handouts or we are going to um, just give everybody money or something just, you know, dumbing down is certainly a mark of propaganda. I think also that propaganda doesn't invite us to inhabit a space of ambiguity. It doesn't deal in paradox. But a lot of things are richly ambiguous. There is another side to them. There's an on the other hand. You have to walk full circle around them to really understand the issue. And propaganda tends to flatten what it represents. And so it all comes down to this. And so I'm really, I sort of have my antennae out when people say, well, really, it all, it's all pretty simple. Here's what's going on. I think either there's something good that's happening here where we're getting to the center of the thing, or more likely, we're just flattening it into instant comprehensibility. And I think that um, something that's not propaganda will require a little bit of patience. One of the questions I ask students to ask in themselves in classes when they're reading a text is what does this writer require of me? And what does this writer invite me to do? And if the writer is inviting you to stop and reflect and manage or navigate um, multiple possibilities, then it's, it's less likely to be propaganda. Propaganda doesn't do that. They're great questions we can ask. Um, someone else is wondering, how can we know when an economic metaphor is helpful or harmful? You mentioned their presence in the Bible, but also questioned their use in the church or academy, for instance. Can you ex mm -hmm. uh, explore that more with us? Yeah, I've been very troubled by, as I said, the marketing language in the academy, which is where I do most of my work, but certainly also in the church, on some church websites. Um, there's a kind of language that's borrowed from the world of advertisement to make people be excited about a product. And actually the word excited is so overused. I'm really tired of it. And I get kind of snarky about it after a while. <laughs> Certain kinds of youth leaders are excited about pretty much everything. I think this idea of trying to generate enthusiasm before you actually invite reflection is a problem. And that's what market language tends to do. You're trying to sell an idea. And even you remember that ad campaign on billboards that said got milk. And then, then there, I don't know, this is California, who knows what you see in the rest of the country, but there were billboards I passed for a while that said got Jesus. And I don't know, that really bothered me. I just thought we're not selling Jesus here. 
and it's not like milk. And so that the reduction of things to a product comes from a culture in which we have managed to commodify pretty much everything. There's a lovely kind of classic from the, I don't know, 1960s by Lewis Hyde called The Gift. He's an anthropologist. And he talks about the fact that in intact cultures, there's usually some realm of gift, gift giving, where there are some things that may not be bought or sold. You can't put a price on them. And we certainly preserve that in you, the not for sale campaign. You don't get to buy or sell people, although God knows it has been done and continues to be done in various ways. Um, but the notion that we need a realm of gifts where we exchange things freely that's protected from the marketplace, that's what needs eroded. And more and more, it seems to me, has been put up for sale. The air, the water, the airwaves. Um, and so we tend to start thinking of ourselves and our time and our life energy as a product. So that's, that just seems to me to be one lineage of market metaphors, economic metaphors, speaking in terms of money exchange when, we sh we're, when we're talking about things that should not be reduced to products or commodities. Um, and it, it, uh, perhaps it also relates to um, divorcing something from the process. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, perhaps you expected a question like this, Marilyn, but um, this individual says, I'm a pastor and I'm wondering how to, quote, speak peace and truth in our time, especially on the Sunday after the election. Um, obviously, we're in the moment um, right before that's taking place in our country. And so um, we spoke about that. I just wonder, how can we be equipped um, kind of expounding on this or expanding, excuse me, on this question as people of faith and, and wanting to, to speak peace, um, to love our neighbors and to be present with the body of believers on, um, on a Sunday and perhaps uh, what might a leader, a pastor um, in this instance of this question um, engage in speaking peace? Boy, that's such a good question. And I think about it also in the classroom. What do we do the day after? Or probably we won't have results the day after, but what do we do in the aftermath of this yeah. historically contentious and very messy election season when so much is at stake and there's so much distrust? And so I think one thing all of us who are in any position of leadership may need to do at that moment is to say, okay, we are in a place where there's so much pain. People are fatigued. I mean, just to name it, people are fatigued. Some of us are feeling relief. Some of us are feeling lost. Some of us are feeling threatened. We actually are in a place of what is unknown. And we're in that space together. And so to remind ourselves again that we are pilgrims on a journey and this piece of the journey may take us through a dark valley but it doesn't have to be as enemies and we have other opportunity other options besides warfare within our communities and beyond but then i think it's a time to really get complicated to get to honor the complexity of healing what is it not just 
let's patch it all over and be friends again. But what is the deep work we need to do together to heal from this strenuous, threatening, scary time and to prepare ourselves for what is likely to come? We don't know. Actually, right now I'm teaching a course at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley called Writing into the Unknown. And I designed the course for this semester. (laughs) And so a lot of it has to do with just getting onto the blank page and saying, there are a lot of things we really don't know. Let's just begin and find out where we are and let's explore what might be next. And let's consider how we equip one another. I love the phrase equipping the saints. And I love a critic I enjoy, Kenneth Burke, said um, literature is equipment for living. So I think part of the work we have to do after whatever the outcome is, is to, to challenge people to beat those swords into plowshares and then equip one another to do the work at hand and then be really clear about identifying what that work is. Jesus was clear about it and Lincoln was clear about it. Find up the wounds, care for the widow and the orphan do the ordinary things we're all called to anyway, but not naively and not stupidly and not defensively. So I think leaders have to really help people navigate a fairly narrow path among all the landmines. Complexity of healing. I love that. Pursuing Mm -hmm. the complexity of healing. Marilyn, thank you so much. This was such just a rich and encouraging formative conversation. We're so blessed by your reflections on language and how we use our words um, that we're all growing in and wanting to um, really pursue healthy relationship with each other, but also with God um, as, um, yeah, Christ followers and those that embody his spirit. So thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, all of you who came. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.